0: Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1 with All Care Pharmacy. Discover a healthcare team that's always here for you at All Care Pharmacy, Ireland's largest community pharmacy
1: network. Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1.
0: In 2013, the Interdepartmental Committee was commissioned to establish the facts of state involvement with the Magdalen Laundries. In its lengthy report, it found that financial records for the Donnybrook Magdalen Laundry in Dublin did not survive. Well, a new book on the institution has uncovered records relating to a 30-year period of the laundry's operation and says it has found evidence that it made a good financial surplus annually. a Dublin, Magdalen Laundry, Donnybrook and Church State Power in Ireland is out today and two of its editors join me in the studio now Dr Mark Cohen of University College Dublin and Dr Maeve O'Rourke of University College Galway you're both very welcome and thank you for being here Maeve we often think about institutions in this country and the people in in them or who were in them as being uh, invisible but you suggest there was a huge awareness around the Donnybrook Magdalene Laundry in particular in society at the time just talk to us about why you've come to that conclusion
2: will actually clear the records that were found on the site, which we'll talk about in due course, no doubt. They show us that this Magdalen laundry was a highly organized, large commercial operation that did business with, I think, probably almost every institution that you or I could, you know um, see if we went out the doors here in RTE. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, it did business with RTE. It did business with UCD. Oris and Uthron was obviously one of its customers. That's something that... uh, we've been speaking about since we found these records it did business with numerous hospitals uh, St Vincent's down the road the National Maternity Hospital Blackrock College as well other schools Switzer's Elm Park Golf Club Fitzwilliam Lawn Tennis Club CIE the Commissioner for Irish Lights the Blood Transfusion Service Board many hotels and embassies including the French Argentine and Canadian embassies
0: And there's no suggestion that any of those organisations did anything wrong wrong wrong, but what it does tell us is how embedded in society the laundry was.
2: Absolutely, and it was sold in 1992 by the nuns as a going concern. So this isn't ancient history, this is very recent. The records that we have are from the 1960s to the 1990s. Mm -hmm. um, Very extensive indeed. We also um, have found Our contributors have found in the research for this book that um, charity appeals were broadcast on Radio Erin until 1970. The newspapers carried frequent requests for donations and commendations of the nun's good work, bequests were frequently made by the wealthy, as well as many others in Irish society and advertised in the newspapers. So Mm -hmm. it was all very well known. um, And it was known at official levels that the nuns were not paying wages. um, And it was known at official levels that courts were sending girls and women. So in terms of knowing that there was abuse going on, um, it was established that these were Penitentiaries. In fact, the Magellans were described in the Catholic Directory until 1971 as penitentiaries and that they weren't paying wages. But I think we have a chapter from Professor Ray Denright. She talks about the notion of charity covering a multitude, this notion that um, pursuit of religious ends is charitable in itself. And therefore, anything the nuns were doing was considered charitable. And the people who were donating and the people who were doing business were then established as good you know, doers of good works.
0: Yes. Just on that issue of not paying wages, um, Mark, that brings us to the example of um, of a military uh, contract that was in place. Now, this is interesting because the Interdepartmental Committee, which I mentioned earlier, chaired by Dr. Martin McAleese, it found that it wasn't able to verify the claim that the Magdalene Laundry in Donnybrook was awarded a contract for military laundry. You found otherwise, did you?
1: That's correct, Claire uh, So uh, when uh, researching in the Dublin Diocesan archives, and if I could make an aside uh, on that... Uh, I think the the Archbishops of Dublin are actually to be commended for allowing open access uh, to their archive, um, which uh, turned up some of the the material we've uncovered in the book. So in relation to the military contract, we found uh, in the Dublin Diocesan Archives evidence, um, very interesting evidence, that not only was a military contract awarded uh, to Donnybrook uh, during the emergency, uh, but that the state, in fact, revoked the contract because the nuns were in breach of the Fair Wages Clause, uh, which was established clause in all state contracts uh, and and there's correspondence between the Sisters of Charity uh, in Donnybrook and the Department of Defence and uh, the Reverend Mother at the time uh, Mother Eucaria uh, Greer um, argues very robustly that she, she's aghast that the Department of Defence can't understand that uh, you know that this is a charity and she makes the point for example uh, well uh, in the commercial laundries where they pay wages um, if, if the business goes down they let people go but she says we always hold on to our penitence
0: mm-hmm. And she talked about the bed and board that they get and all yes. their needs being met and their doctor visits and so on equating that to payment, more or less? Exactly, yes. Now, we've asked uh, Dr. Martin McAleese to comment on this, and he said that he's not saying anything further beyond his report. All of this began with that YouTube video. It's 38 minutes of somebody walking through the Donnybrook Laundry, isn't it, Mark? People might have seen it. It's extraordinary. Religious statues still on the walls, tantalising glimpses of ledgers in a, in a cupboard. So... Once that video emerged you spent a long time didn't you in discussions with the developers who now own that site in order to get access.
1: Exactly, Claire. Yes. So I mean the the, the kind of route into all of this research was that video on on YouTube. Uh, we don't know who who filmed it or posted it, but uh, I'm very grateful to them uh, whoever they are because um when I saw that video um around 2018 um I was just as you say like taken aback by what had survived i couldn't believe that um the laundry that had, the magdalene laundry that had closed in 1992 um still contained all this religious imagery the statuary um the machinery from the 40s and 50s um and as you say tantalizing glimpses uh of of possibly ledgers and uh when when we so we entered into a dialogue uh with the owners and agents for the owners uh of uh the laundry and we were allowed in with uh an archaeologist, Professor Laura McAtackney, who has um, a a chapter in the book also. And we found a very rich material culture and uh, rich documentary evidence also in the form of correspondence uh, uh, between, um, in particular, between uh, the laundry and the hospitals dating from the 1980s. So, uh, you know, this is very recent history. Um, And
0: and, and all of that documentation, has that all been gone through and cataloged now at this stage?
1: So a very good question. Uh, so it's been deposited uh, in the University of Galway library archives and it's undergoing a process of, of cataloguing at present. So um, it, it, will be, it will be publicly available uh, to researchers.
0: Coming back, maybe to the finances now, there's a chapter in the book that deals with that. Dr Barry Houlihan from the University of Galway says that the records demonstrate the laundry was a very well-organised, industrial and profitable enterprise connected to the highest echelons of the Irish state. And you've explained those connections to us a moment ago but in terms of the finances and the profits what did you find?
2: Well Dr Barry Houlihan is the archivist in Galway so he has been looking through um, elements I suppose other than the financials more to do with types of clients and um, also looking at the analysis perhaps more importantly, on the finances by uh, Dr. Reid Murphy of Dublin City University and Professor Martin Quinn of Queen's University, University Belfast, both experts in accounting. So they um, looked through the extents of records from the years 1962 to 1987. They then took... Um, Years at random recreated the accounts. They found that the Magdalene Laundry generated a good financial surplus annually, and that routinely the laundry transferred between a third and a half of its surplus on trade back to the religious Sisters of Charity. Mm-hmm. Um, now, don't forget, as a charity, is it possible legally to say this was profit? They are by definition non-profit. They were sending their money back to continue their religious ends. Um, but certainly there was a very significant surplus in 1975. For example, that surplus that went back um, would have bought two and a half seaside bungalows in Bray. Um, in today's in today's money? In the money back then. Okay. So the purchasing power is something that mm-hmm. um, Dr. Murphy and Professor Quinn uh note in their chapter. So it is not insignificant and they do note that that surplus was no doubt made possible in large part by the girls and women's unpaid okay, labor. Um,
0: we have asked the Sisters of Charity if if they want to respond to any of the details that emerge uh, in the book including on on the finances. We haven't had a response from them so far but we'll bring that to you if uh, you get one. Did you seek mark uh, involvement from the Sisters of Charity in the book?
1: We, we did indeed Claire. We we thought that was a, a really important uh, aspect of, of doing the research and uh, obviously the Sisters of Charity ran the institution uh, at Donnybrook from 1837 to 1992 um so they were major stakeholders, obviously, uh, in the institution. They they ran it. Uh, we were very keen to get their perspectives. Um, we now they did uh, give me one day of access to the House Annals of the institution, which would be the kind of official internal uh, history. Um, but they uh, up to 1920, that was the the most recent one that I was able to look at. But as you'll appreciate, Claire, you can't do very much in an archive in one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we then arranged a Zoom with their leadership team. Uh, and we made a number of proposals to them in the course of, of that meeting in terms of, of how we, we, we might collaborate with them. We, we offered, for example, to show them drafts of our of our work for their comments, um, because, you know, we were conscious that we wanted it to be accurate and, um, you know, their perspectives would have been uh, obviously of interest in that context. Um, we also uh, gave them the opportunity uh, if they wanted to participate in an oral history project where uh, we would have done interviews uh, with them about the operation and legacy of the laundry. and finally we made another offer which was that by that stage through uh, for example finding correspondence on the site um doing extensive newspaper uh research uh, we had we had found the names of 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 several nuns who had been involved in the operation of the laundry uh so we said to the sisters of charity if you give us access to um the house annals uh that you have up to the period when the laundry uh closed we will anonymize the names of 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 all the nuns that we have Um, uh, uh, on coverage in our research and and they declined, uh, you know, as is their entitlement. But I think it's unfortunate they they declined to Mm -hmm. to be involved in, in any way in the research. Okay,
0: and you know, Maeve, the question that's always asked around research like this is whether it's fair to use the standards of today to look back at yesteryear now when I say yesteryear we're talking about up to 1992 um, so I put that proviso in there as well but there were prevailing societal attitudes at the time that we have to take into account when we're discussing all of this
2: well there was a constitution of 1937 that gave in theory on paper every citizen of the country the right not to be arbitrarily detained the right to bodily integrity within the personal rights the 1930 forced labour organisation convention required every state to outlaw the conditions that gave rise to forced labour, not to permit it, not to do business with people. And so this isn't really at all a case of applying only today's standards to the past. I think one of the defining features is that the state enabled this. So it's not just the religious orders, you know, operating off their own bat, so to speak. They were absolutely um, implementing state policy. There were those two um, very powerful forces Mm -hmm. at work together. The state chose to allow this to happen and it is absolutely incumbent on us all now to listen to the survivors, to read the testimony. There's lots of it in the report to look at individual instances that the women speak about so much of physical abuse, not to mention, of course, they're unpaid, forced labour while locked in without any statutory basis at yeah. all. Mark, you want to come in there?
1: Yeah, if I could come in on that, player as well. I mean, I think it's, it's relevant to point out that there were some people uh, who said, you know, who pointed to the operation of the laundries and said this is suspect or, or this shouldn't be going on. So, I mean, uh, one thing I found was um, Fitzgerald McCarthy's uh, book from 1902, uh, Priests and People in Ireland. Uh, in that book, uh, he, he talks specifically about Donnybrook and he says, uh, the Sisters of Charity operate uh, a large uh, laundry enterprise in which they have the free labor of 100 penitents uh, who are locked into their rooms at night and, are, and he described them, their treatment as similar to galley slaves. Um, so that's 1902. Yes. Uh, Yes. Um, So there were people who saw things and, 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 you know, that was published as a book. It was quite a... uh, a widely sold book. I think it sold 60,000 copies, and but he was regarded as anti-clerical.
0: Yeah, and, and you mentioned 100 women. There were 100 women working there at any one time. Is, is that how it, it operated?
1: Yes, yeah, so in so in the book we chart, um, I mean, based on figures, uh, for example, in the Irish Catholic directories, which listed the number of, of women uh, from year to year, we're able to see that about 100 on average. I mean, it increased um, to about 120 uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, um, you know, and and started... Uh, At a lower number, uh, you know, but by the by, about nineteen hundreds, a hundred was was about the number of women.
0: Right. Well, thank you both, and the book is out today. It's called A Dublin Magdalene Laundry: Donnybrook and Church-State Power in Ireland. It's edited by Dr. Mark Cohen, who's here with me, Professor Catherine O'Donnell, also of UCD, and of course Dr. Mabel Rook, who's here as well. It's published by Bloomsbury, and it is in shops now. Thank you both very much for coming in. Coming up next on the program, as older people are advised to get back out there by the. Chief Medical Officer will get advice on where to start. That's next. Email todaycb at rte.ie.